had a long week, uh, Thanksgiving week. So I hope uh, oh, you guys had a good Thanksgiving. Everyone listening had a good Thanksgiving. Um, seems like there's lots of energy news over the last few days. Actually, speaking of John, Ar- John Arnold, he dropped this pretty badass list of just current energy trends over the last uh, several years. Does anyone have that pulled up? I'd like to I do. dive you know, into that. Yeah. How we have it. How should we, uh, how should we go about this? Should we just uh, read choose off one these? Or, choose one or two of them to read. Yeah. Um, I think that the first one, you know, Kirk's going to have some input on. Uh, it says, first off, he says, these are 23 random musings over of the massive changes in the energy and climate in the U.S. over the past five years the first one is clean tech vc went from disfavored to overpriced to something in the middle um this is the one that i liked no more graphs with price of renewables going to zero um <laughs> hated that phenomenon on twitter um my you know what mine was that i like uh and the girlfriend and i were talking about this um he talked about interstate pipeline projects of any kind became uninvestable so oil gas carbon and I really think where that goes back to is the FERC changing their approval process. Yes. And Jeff Davies co-hosted BDE with me maybe two years ago when this happened, and we talked about it. But and I'll I'll get this wrong, but basically what happened is Biden was allowed to appoint a Democrat, which gave him three to two. Uh, Joe Manchin had always been the block on that because he's from an energy state, he gave gave up his block uh, for something, a pipeline or something, whatever it was, part of a bigger deal. Um, so the three to two immediately changed, and now uh, the FERC has to consider climate change goals when approving a, a project. And it seems like that's just ground everything to a halt, because mm. even if you had a pipeline that was leaking 10 million a day of methane into the atmosphere and you could put a new pipe in that's 0.001 unit of methane being leaked the FERC still has to say nope that one that 0.001 unit of methane being leaked that leads to climate change so they don't look at it in yeah, a contextual not a basis it's they don't look at it in a vacuum they don't have to i guess i mean it's the yeah. point it's almost first world problems i mean we have so much energy security in this country yeah that these debates are almost, I mean, the rest of the world, you got, you know, Japan that's, you know, trying to do these long-term LNG contracts like like yeah. other European countries um, because they're worried about energy security. We have energy security. Yeah. And so we're, the, the, the pipeline issue is really interesting because through the context of the lens that, hey, we have so much, we're so abundant in energy. Now our prices are increasing because we can't get more oil and gas exported and we can yeah. probably be even more secure financially. Yeah. Um, but or kind let's of, keep going. Yeah, we're kind of nitpicking yeah. on. If you don't things. have that, like this. India announced recently that <clears throat> they plan to double underground coal production. That's the response. They're either priced out of it or don't have the natural gas infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. That's where this is going in very significant parts of the world. I mean, I've been to India quite a few times. There, I know there's some oil off the coast, but they don't have anything in the country. So right. they're, they're screwed. They have a lot of trash, which I know <laughs> one of the facilities that I used to work at, um, we had a, a 
a new technology to take trash and create fuel out of it. But they have coal. I mean, it's it makes sense for them to do it, especially with a country that's trying to grow as fast as China. And yeah, surpass the, it. the point is, you know, one of the other, I, I, th- I thought one of the most stunning fundamentals is that electricity demand is growing for the first time in 15 years. That That yeah. sounds like you know, stating the obvious, but as we've been talking about the pressure that's being put on the grid, that's a pretty important important one. Yeah. And that rate of growth, just given the profile of demand changing and tipping toward more to do with data centers, et cetera, is uh, pretty interesting to contemplate. We're not going to, po- I mean, we'll post this John Arnold's tweet on our, on the show, yeah. right? Yeah, we will. Yeah. I'm because, also probably going to write a Because if I take post. all 23 of these, I, I'm, I keep, every time I do it, I'm like, oh yeah, we talked about that. We've talked we about, talk about all these things. We've talked about all these things. Well, you know, I was looking, he talks about the creation of two industries. He said electricity storage became an industry, carbon capture became an industry, but point seventeen rebirth of domestic manufacturing related to energy transition. I mean, how many times have we talked about that on the show of co-location of We're manufacturing? We're way ahead of that. Yeah, I think. that's what, we've been ahead of a lot of that stuff. And so I'm probably gonna write, a, I was just thinking about this as I was looking through that. It's like, I'm gonna write a blog post and go through each one of these points get some commentary and then go back and look at where we talked about it. Um, but you know, John, uh, I love the way that John Arnold thinks because I love how he just sits down and thinks about, Hey, you know, over the last five, 10 years, what are the things that we've seen and just go, and I'm sure that we could add even more to that if we sat down sounds, and thought about it. Sounds like a couple may be good for uh, Frex slapped. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying, man. Is this time to a public service announcement? Um, because Fans have written in and they're confused because Colin, you don't speak with enough gusto. Gusto. <laughs> gusto. That's what I was told on LinkedIn that I either need to sit closer to the mic or bring it's more. It's time gusto. to man up. Do you see those so, cauliflower ears you've what, got? Uh, apparently, they're telling me to say it with my chest, and so um, I'm trying to sit really close to the microphone right now because I don't want to get called out on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> But anyways, so what you, else? You know what's uh, interesting? If you just to kind of like close out John Arnold's tweet, and everybody should read it, is it feels like the absolute absence of science was used on a lot of these, but the other half of the of his twenty three are we're now realizing that science matters. Yeah, you know? yeah. That, that that's what I was struck with. When uh when I was sitting there, uh, yeah, I liked his ones, and you know, one point was about higher interest rates, dismantling big renewable projects. Um, it's actually you know kind of helping Shell. Shell realizes that it has a methane problem. You know, this is something that we talk about on oil and gas startups podcast all the time. New technologies that are being deployed for methane mitigation, and then I thought one interesting point on there was he talked about oil and gas companies realizing that we've hit peak shale and acting like it. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that one. Um, No, I mean, John's a trader by nature. He's taking bets. Um, I think we should use this list almost annually and just go back to it and be like, I mean, these are five, it's a five year view, but I think one of the things we've, we always make predictions, but this would be actually a pretty good list to come back and revisit. Yeah. See how it, do you ever, have you ever gone to Raymond James's annual dinner they do around NAEP? 
Marshall Atkins. I think I've been to Raymond's house and James' house, but not Raymond James. James. (laughs) (laughs) But what Marshall always does is he he does his macro presentation, um, and it's always he starts with here's last year's presentation. Here's in red what I got right and what I got wrong, Mm. and he goes through each one of it. And you could see that. Okay, here are the twenty three things. Okay, that changed this year. X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Up oh, this one check still the same. Yeah. I don't know I'd if do he's that. I don't know if he's purposeful in doing this, but I, I love just the list. But as I sort of looked at this list, because we we're gonna talk about it, he definitely hits on the financial and investment trends. Mm-hmm. He hits on energy policy and market dynamics. He hits on technological and industrial developments. And he hits on energy infrastructure and reliability. And then he hits environmental and strategic considerations with the SPR. It's interesting how he categorizes it. I mean, I don't know if that's how he categorized it in his mind. Yeah. But he kind of looked at the holistic yeah. view of the energy landscape. And he did a pretty damn good job of in- encapsulating all the sort of major thesis points. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of things that I would have added. I would have definitely said something about um, electricity demand from data centers, whether it's Bitcoin mining or Absolutely. GPU clusters. I think that that's one of those things that you look on that list five years from now and you're like, man, we probably still underestimated the impact that that has. Um, that, that's the subtopic under... 13, which is, you know, we've had this resurgent growth in electricity demand. In the oh, that's US. right. So yeah. you could unpack yeah, that. Yeah, it's a sub-bullet point. But I, but I think that, it, yeah. it stands on its own, too, Yeah, as we've talked about over the last yeah several weeks and months. Well, yeah. he's not going there. He's not going to go there, but we've gone there is sort of this who's driving who's driving energy usage. It's, it's te- big tech. I mean, that's not something John Arnold's going to go. He's not going to go against his friends at – yeah. The uh, breakthrough energy or whatever, you know, whatever the fund's called. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think it's going, I mean, actually, I'm pretty sure he's an LP in that, but. He um, He said it. Yeah. But also, I don't think it's going again. I mean, that's just statement of fact, right? Um, I, I know, that, but I think you can't going, always, you know. I don't think that's going against him. I don't think it's a bad thing either to use energy. Like, we should embrace using energy. And so, um yeah, you know, I think was it, that, was it Ben Shapiro that says don't let your, don't let my facts get in the way of your feelings or something yeah. like that. <laughs> well, the you know the peak shale comment I think provides a lot of of material for both short and long term because we've seen a watershed deal in the form of Exxon and Pioneer betting on you know an extension of productivity productivity improvement continuing mm-hmm. uh, far out into the future. And that's a unique set of assets, but it's also of scale enough to be representative for at least one of the sub-basins. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to watch because Exxon you know, did imply that a big part of their synergies that they're looking to capture from the deal are, are in the form of improved recoveries. Yeah. And there was some comment around the notion of actually doubling those. I mean, it, it's fascinating to me when you hear, Mark, you may you may know these numbers off the top of your head, I don't, but when you hear how much oil we li- leave in the ground from these horizontal wells, mm. I mean, it's just kind of staggering. We we capture or recover you're, very little of it. You're in high single right? digit recovery yeah, factors. Yeah, and yeah. You know, getting to 2X that, it's just the nature of the rock, but you know, more stimulated rock volume, more you mobilize. Yeah. You know, can you can you get a doubling of that? And and to be fair to Exxon, um, not to 
kind of go back too far and and beat that topic into the ground. They didn't really qualify as to that doubling of recovery being a function largely of going from two to four mile laterals mm-hmm. or actually doing better a better job of more precision in terms of geo steering and stimulation design and all that. So yeah, it, it's just going to be really interesting to watch because as you all know, the industry copies and learns and applies pretty well. To to get out on, to get out on this uh, topic, uh, let's all name one thing five years five years from now that's going to be on the list. Kirk, you're up. Oh, great! Throw me first. Hell yeah! I need time to think. Um, I mean, I'm going to take the number one since we didn't really talk about. But CleanTech VC went from disfavor to overpriced to something in the middle. Um, energy technology is energy technology is energy technology. Yeah. Um, in five years from now, I think it's gonna you're gonna see this ebb and flow of people from sort of the West Coast that want to play in, in the environment and energy, but ultimately it's it's for the adults in the room, and I think you're gonna see a flight um, to quality, and you're gonna see sort of investments moving towards projects that really make sense, you know, mm-hmm. like carbon capture. Um, technologies that actually produce cleaner fuels yeah um things that actually make sense for energy transition versus you know i'm laughing because one of the companies that i argued against not investing in is in a is a hydrogen electric powered airplane um uh they just raised an additional funding i'm like there's some things that i think are just so long term out there um that 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 investors are going to start shying away from over the next five years yeah, flight well, quality. I love, is I love kind that of my, you distinguish the difference between you know clean tech, climate tech, energy tech. You know our energy tech podcast. That's why I was against naming it climate tech podcast because I'm like, really, it's, energy tech is energy tech, and that's what we care about. And I think you look at you know we've talked about it on the show some, but you know Diamondback Energy made a twenty million dollar placement in Verde Clean Fuels, and Verde's got a technology where you know you're taking methane essentially, and they're using that as feedstock for renewable fuels and start seeing like those things, you know, Diamondback's not stupid and they know how to also leverage their engineering and assets and infrastructure as well to help them. And so you're going to start seeing a lot more of those projects Mm -hmm. that make sense as, as you said, and, you know, Kirk's on the kind of ground floor of this too, right now. I mean, raising, you know, capital and, building startups and just seeing the shift that's happening in the market. I mean, it's definitely cooled off um, compared to where it was two years ago. And, you know, I think that's evident. We talked about it last week with like Hillion just getting, you know, these clean tech SPACs, EV SPACs, just getting completely obliterated. And so um, it definitely seems that it's cooled off. So what's your five-year forecast? Take one of the bullets. Take one of those. Either that or something that's going to be a bullet. Whatever. I mean, I'm not talking about bullet as a JFK bullet. We covered that last week. Yeah, speaking of, I watched the JFK documentary last night. We just had a big discussion before we get on the podcast about it. If you haven't watched it, I don't want to take a bullet. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) So I think- Or two, for that matter. Yeah. Um- I'm not going to pick one. I'm going to pick a spectrum of them. What I'm really focused on is the data center thing. Um, You know, I've been fortunate. I get to talk to a lot of people in machine learning and artificial intelligence. And I think that it's fucking cool that we're seeing this intersection where energy and tech are 
kind of coming to this point of singularity. Um, and I just, I think that that's going to kind of be a fascinating space to watch. Um, one thing I didn't see on there was domestic. Hey, so I'm going to cut in real quick. Yeah. Cause one of the things I'm going to, I was going to say is that we were going to see independent power plants powering data centers mm -hmm. literally off the grid or maybe connected to the grid just for backup. Yeah, that'll, and, and, that'll and play And mine was a sub. Was a, was a subset of that. I think y'all oh, okay. stole my point, but go <laughs> okay, ahead. That'll be Keep that'll, that'll piggyback on my third. The second one is domestic lithium production. Um, that was something that I I don't think I saw on his list. Um, you know, uh, our friend Mike Umbro thinks that you give it five years, Exxon's going to completely pull out of their smack over project. He thinks that lithium prices are going to crash and that those wells are going to be uneconomic. That's his hot take. Um, I don't see lithium prices crashing, um, just because of the limited supply of it. But, um, I do think that we'll see a lot more movement towards, you know, some of these kind of alternative lithium, uh, supply, uh, plays. The third one is, which is something I talk a lot about, um, kind of piggybacking off of Chuck is co-location of manufacturing with energy assets. I saw in Chuck as we were driving across Texas. I can't remember where it was, but there's a Nat Gas Peaker plant, and next to that Peaker plant, you have three warehouses that are probably each 100,000 plus square feet, maybe 300,000 square feet each, huge. And that's what the future looks like to me: is manufacturing mm -hmm. plants, data mm -hmm. centers, yep. onshoring, and co-locating with energy assets. And so, um, I just don't see any way that you know all three of those things are are all going to be growing trends over the next five years. Mark, what are you adding to the list? Or just, just building on that, I think, despite what happened to New Scale, we're going to see the building wave again of small modular nuclear reactors because of the features they offer, the reliability, and, and low to zero carbon. And I think that it's more than... Mm -hmm commercial opportunism i think it has a lot to do with the strategic intent of the government in that chip manufacturing is going to be in data center uh, construction or build out and operation is going to be a uh, an increasingly important strategic weapon just as i said several months ago that i believe natural gas send out will be the same thing but i think you know, SMRs get a bit of a shot in the arm because of our intentions mm -hmm. relative to tech data centers and chip manufacturing. Well, you know, that, that goes hand in, in glove with the co-location. I of think what's interesting assets. is, you know, lately we've been talking about how tech has the political clout and that needs to be leveraged around the data center conversation. But also if you look at SMRs and these uh, small modular reactors, I mean, you have, you know, Sam Altman backed, um, it's a company's name, Okla, I think it is. Um, it's an SMR or it's a fusion uh, technology. Sam Altman from OpenAI backed that, and I'm pretty sure he's he's very involved with it from an operational perspective too. So now you're starting to see, you know, one of those items on John Arnold's list was um, a decrease in the resistance against nuclear, and so you're starting to see people in tech who have all this political political clout start to push nuclear energy and a lot of them are going down the fusion route you know does fusion play out in the next 10 years like everyone says it does i i don't speculate i don't know that, but, but um just a side note on that deal um it 
it, sometimes deals when I was at Shell, sometimes deals get to you through like executives or like, will you look at this deal? So the deal got to my desk. And so I called a guy hit me. I'm like, what's up, man? He's like, dude, this is so top secret. You know, I can tell you, but then I'm gonna have to kill you. Like you're gonna have to sign NDA and then another NDA. I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing again? It's like, it's nuclear, but I can't, I can, I can't tell you anything about it. I'm like, oh gosh, you must be from Silicon Valley. He's like, yeah, yeah, we got all the big guys in. He na drops names. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is so exhausting. Yeah. When you, yeah. when you, when you, when you raise money from like engineers from the oil patch, they're humble. Mm -hmm. They're like, man, yeah. And you kind of almost question their scientific chops because they're like, oh yeah. And you almost feel like they made it with like, you know, yeah, twine and some scissors. Yeah, but they're they know their shit. Mm -hmm. And when you go, go to like Silicon Valley, these people are like, dude, we like we're the best. We've invented nuclear. I'm like, yeah. no, it's no, you didn't. Well, there's it's a, crazy. There's a big disconnect between bits and atoms, right? And what has Silicon Valley been really geared towards over the last 10, 15, 20 years is bits and much less atoms. Actually, most VCs won't even invest in anything hardware related um and so you know tons of brilliant people out in silicon valley but it's up to chucky now so, so here's your... here's what we're going to be talking about in five years from now not on john's list the we have kind of defaulted to this point power generation to the big utilities in america the yeah. grid operators etc you're going to see a rise of a private equity class um, on par with what we've seen in VC and what we saw with private equity, oil and gas, and what they did for the shale revolution. You're going to see that in power because that's going to be the only way to hey, solve Hey, when, when Texas deregulated the birth of Tenasca, and like, that's when private equity went wild with building all these um, private equity-backed power plant so actually that's a great point John. yeah we're, we're gonna have to see that to fix the, the i problem think you're right it will man. not be done by the utilities no no offense to our friends at nextera or any of the others but it's not gonna happen i right. have one more to add that i don't think was on that list but the rise of bi-directional virtual power plants you know utilizing these distributed energy <clears throat> resources whether it's solar at a house feeding that back into the grid um you know, Tesla has a big deal um, out in California. Um, and, you know, you have startups like David Energy that are now utilizing it here in Texas. And to me, that makes all of the sense in the world. I know there's misaligned incentives across the, the supply chain, essentially. But, man, if you think about it, you know, being able to have uh, solar at your house, a battery wall, potentially even an EV and utilities paying you for any energy that you're storing and being able to distribute that and help with load balancing and um, peak demand. That seems like the future. To so me, I'm so. back to startup um, that's ahead on this space. Um, it's called local. I mean, the re at the, at the end of the day, energy should be produced and consumed locally. That's mm -hmm. the most efficient. Yeah. Um, Europe actually has pretty sophisticated self con consumption laws or actually there's some already laws in the European Union around how to actually settle and, and what do you do with power locally? It's coming. California has been looking at this. I think there's a lot of work. It's regulatory is the big reason why it's not working today. 
but you're right. I actually think it's really local energy consumption. Why doesn't, you know, let's say Boulder, for example, University of Colorado, they have big power plant on their university. Yeah. Well, when they have excess power, why can't they feed the neighborhood? And when the neighborhood generates excess solar, why can't they feed it back yeah. into his neighborhood? Or like you look at like H HEB builds these little micro power plants, you know, they have these huge net gas turbines. You're right. It's like, why, why can't HEB be a little peaker plant and put electricity back the tariff the problem grid. hasn't been figured out that's the biggest issue and if you I, I still think it's bigger that the existing <clears throat> monopoly that runs the wires claims oh you're gonna blow up my grid oh, if you do that absolutely right I yeah that that's big problem number one and s engineers need to be brought by the government together to say no, you're not going to blow up your grid, guys. Well, you know what we the problem. You know what the problem up. is. Our grid's blowing up anyway. You want to know what the problem is? I was talking to a renewable company the other day. This is verbatim. I'm not making this up. And they said, "Yeah, one of the big issues right now is that all the top tier engineering talent is still in thermal generation, and renewables and utilities get the B team." <laughs> so. I haven't posted that out on uh, Twitter because I don't want to hurt any feelings, but there it is on the on the BD podcast straight from the horse's mouth. Can I so. ask just one question on this post from Arnold? Number five, GOP politicians broadly acknowledge global warming from human activities. Define GOP. Well, I, I, that's where I was like, maybe I haven't been paying attention. Is that true? Yeah. I'm not the guy to ask. Yeah. I no, guess you, we're just not in that. Like, I'm not in that flow or what? I would actually, I would trust John. I mean, John is obviously very involved in DC. And so I would, you know, he probably has anyway. some no, pulse I mean, the backlash it, when went backlash from when Lee Raymond said what he said. I think you, I think you've seen generally speaking, right wing the, politicians walk that back. The, the issue is, or the third rail is whether or not you believe it's a direct and primary cause of, of climate catastrophe, right? Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about that. I, right? I, I think there's general agreement and <clears throat> whether that's, that's good for the camera and good for the party to say, yes, there is some contributing factor. The question is degrees of severity and catastrophe. And, yeah. and so well I think there's still- What should we should do about it. Right. What should we do Did y'all see the video I posted? Talking about the five extinction events. Do y'all see this? No? Uh -uh. Yeah, I didn't get very many views. But anyways, it was a badass video. So it's this narration and like 30 second clip walking through the five extinction events. And I posted on Thanksgiving and I was just oh, like, yeah. hey, just a reminder that someday you're. <laughs> that was a cool video. No, yeah, it was awesome. I said, just a reminder that someday your descendants are going <laughs> to die a terrible death from climate change so be thankful that you live in one of the most stable and habitable times in the earth's history <laughs> like you gotta have some perspective of uh you know me and mark were talking about this before we got on the show is that you know life for humans isn't guaranteed <laughs> right. on on this planet and you know hopefully if we figure out a way to mitigate uh climate change and um uh, or habit other planets but we're one asteroid away from <laughs> all being wiped out of here. So yeah, exactly. also keeps some perspective. Good thing that <laughs> dinosaurs had a carbon tax. Yeah. COP? Um, yeah, so the OPEC secretariat issued an open letter this morning uh, ahead of COP in response to uh, 
the latest in a series of reports issued by the IEA, uh, which was preceded by a tweet from the IEA's executive director, Fatih Birol, all of this timing is, is, is certainly coinciding with the kickoff of COP, I believe, in the next couple of days. And basically calling out the oil and gas industry um, mm-hmm. and, and suggesting that they, very strongly suggesting that the oil and gas industry faces a moment of truth and a binary choice either to continue contributing to the problem of emissions and emissions-related climate change or shifting hard and spending more in renewables. And you know the, the OPEC secretariat issued a two-page strong rebuttal to that and basically covered all the things that we've talked about in terms of affordability, sustainability, accessibility, et cetera, reliability, and consigning billions of people to a perpetual life or a per- perpetual state of energy <clears throat> poverty. And so it's this, it's this vilifying the oil and gas industry that um, certainly OPEC and others have taken a bit of exception to. And um, I responded to a certain tweet this weekend um, that was base, basically taking the executive director to task by saying that I believe it's actually the IEA that may be facing the moment of truth here as they head into COP28. And if you look at results of recent elections like in Argentina and the Netherlands, those were in part a referendum on top-down net zero policies and more importantly, the cost to consumers and the electorate mm-hmm. that these things have immediately increase the burden upon the electorate, which for a politician is not yeah, not a great situation mm-hmm. to be in. I also think, even though it was, as I read it, it was never on President Biden's schedule, he is not appearing at COP28, which I think, given the crescendo of things that we've had around the issue of climate change and the IRA, that for him not to make an appearance this year heading into 2024 well, I think is, this is, is a pretty important kind of symbolism here. This is completely anecdotal and probably, you know, a little bit biased, small sample size. But to me, it seems that COP is losing a little bit of its uh, influence and gravitas because I've seen two or three comments on Twitter from my friends who are um, in climate or climate tech. And one of their tweets stands out to me because he's like, when I first got into climate, you know, my mentality was, oh, COP's happening. I got to cover it. He's like, now he's like, I don't give a shit. It doesn't matter. Like none of it, none of it matters. And so you're starting to see these people that are like five years into climate energy and have these realizations of some of these things actually don't, don't. So it it tracks the trajectory of NAEP, you know, because if you think about it, you think about it, uh, COP supposed to have Record turnout this year, 70-some-odd thousand people there and all. But the true insiders are going, ah, shit doesn't get done there. It's a cocktail party. That's nice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Totally. Well, there there will be a series of the obligatory tweets about count the private jets and the carbon footprint, et cetera. Yeah. And and so, you know, it's going to turn into, I think, a bit of a – a melee and and <clears throat> fairly chaotic in terms of the rhetoric. That's yeah. This that's I, I this tweet from the guy at the IEA. Just you see the you see the bias right off the bat with 
their with their wording that they use you know this is the moment of truth for oil and gas or you know, however they framed it and you know i haven't talked about this publicly but i was told at least not with gusto i was told yeah. with gusto with no gusto i was told twice over the last couple of months that representatives of the department of energy couldn't come speak at fuse because they've been instructed not to be involved with anything that touches oil and gas <laughs> That shows you how politicized this is, that the Department of Energy doesn't want to be associated with oil and gas. And it's kind of infuriating, to, to be honest. And, you know, I could see it coming from IEA, um, but when it comes from, you know, federal institution, government well, institution, you think that you need to be pragmatic and... IEA factual. was kind of a leading indicator here <clears throat> because IEA is fundamentally or was fundamentally designed to provide objective policy leadership and be um you know be the best in the world in terms of in terms of data energy data and analysis mm -hmm. in shaping policy and policy leadership around mm -hmm. that but they've clearly picked winners and losers here mm -hmm. right it's it, it's pretty clear why yeah, uh, because of the money involved. Yeah, but I do think the moment of truth, and, and I think that was a very uh, high risk thing for Dr. Birrell to put out there, just given some of the shifts politically that we've seen, where we've had these, as I describe them, top down in some cases forced net zero policies. Look at Germany. Look at uh, we covered some anecdotes from Europe this summer, both you and I, Chuck, were over there. And there was a palpable, palpable pushback among the rank and file that, you know, these things are becoming real in terms of burdens on me uh, for my livelihood and my ability to afford my standard of living, right? Yeah. So I think that's the moment of truth really, as I described it, is probably a little bit more shifting toward the moment of truth for the IEA. They've got to have a better solution than let them eat cake. I mean, they're just, and that, I think it's becoming more and more apparent. Mark, my I favorite, got it. My oh. favorite COP story, though, is uh, Sultan Ajabar, I think I'm pronouncing this correct, who's the president of this whole thing from the UAE. He had memos that got exposed of the 15 oil and gas companies he was going to meet with while he was there nice. <laughs> to work on oil and gas deals. So there, there, there's an underground nape going on there's in a, COP28. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> That's know, better there's, than there's a, private jet. But, but this is not, I mean, let's look at what's happening around the world. I mean, we talked Germany, we talked the election in Netherlands, the election in Argentina. The UK um, prime minister has been talking UK about prime it, pushing minister, back electric vehicles. I mean, the fight, mandates. if you think about energy security versus, versus, you know, net zero, it's bouncing back to energy security because of people just can't afford things. Yeah. And, and it may, almost makes you in awe in some ways of the Chinese, how they've been head down. And when they come to the U.S. and meet with our president, who's all about net zero, they meet in, in San Francisco. I mean, it is amazing how they're sort of just outmaneuvering everyone on on sort of you know the political spectrum as well as the energy security spectrum because mm -hmm. their coal is abundant and they're building coal and they continue to build coal and and, yeah. and they know that. Um, yeah, and, and lead the 
and lead to energy transition because all the supply chain is they still, own it. still no. they own it all. Yeah, no, it's like- <laughs> It's unbelievable. It's <laughs> very wor- worrisome how much we're getting outplayed. <laughs> On, it's gonna it's on, gonna come on to roost at there. some point. Yeah. Um which Mark, which makes what just diatribing on this. Did you read Blackman's? Do you ever you read his uh his his piece on Substack? But he had a picture of sort of four key uh politicians that are all against um gas stoves. They want to go to electric. Oh yeah. <laughs> they were all yeah. posing with gas stoves. They're all posing this holidays with their like what they're making on no, gas stoves. I, I told Chuck because <laughs> I bashed on Elizabeth Warren's last year. And I was a I think I was the first one to see it. She posted that picture. No one had posted it, but I just saw the I saw the grating on top of the stove. Like you couldn't even see like oh we know it's it look it's gas because yeah. I looked all um, I all I need is a little corner <laughs> I can see what it is I think one of them you can see the ring of blue flame yeah oh, yeah, yeah. One, yeah, yeah it's co- I told I told yeah. Chuck that it's gonna become a thing where these politicians like they're like they won't take a picture from now on with their gas stove and the well back, I don't but, I don't actually think they're worried about it because because it doesn't apply to them well yeah no. I mean oh, man, just but. the yeah I mean the cognitive you know. <laughs> Ability to just not give a shit. I don't understand how politicians operate that way. But Mark, I was also going to tell you that I got invited, and this is probably an open invite if we have all four of us want to go do it. But I won't say the university's name, but the university was like, you know, every year we go over to Europe and we challenge the, you know, IEA's assumptions. And we would love for y'all to follow us and record content in a podcast of. Oh, us heck doing yeah. that. We should, Absolutely. We Done. should do it. <laughs> That's a big resounding we. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we. Yeah. Um, we, we. So, well, my, you know, fuck these students. Let's sick Mark on them. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll, uh, I'll reach out and I'll, I'll make that happen. So, real quick, OPEC, what are they going to do? I mean, yeah. And, mm, Rory Johnson mm. had a good tweet at the end of last week saying, you know, all the, hair pulling and hand wringing about the uncertainty and the elevated volatility incurred because of, of the OPEC, um, you know, background noise. And then the postponement of the meeting crude finished off last week, 0.04%. Right. So, (laughs) um, it, it sounds like heading into the rescheduled meeting, which starts at 1300 GMT on Thursday, that, they're getting closer to a compromise with the, I don't want to say renegade, but there's a collection of unnamed African countries. This all has to do with, I guess, the, the, the top of the cartel doing a little bit more arm twisting about bringing production into more alignment with quotas, but also reducing some quotas. Yeah. Because it's, it's obviously in Russia and, and Saudi's best interest to, buoy pricing here, certainly in the Brent 80 uh, territory, uh, maybe closer to 90. Uh, Keep in mind that Brent was at 98 at the end of September. So flirting with sub 80 is a pretty big uh, degradation or erosion in a very short period of time. And so it sounds like they're getting their stuff together. I think crude's trading pretty well today. It was holding in around 80 on the Brent side. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, I think what the long history of OPEC meetings and observers and watchers and prognosticators have proven is that we're all mostly wrong about what's happening in the meeting and what comes out of it. But um, it, it seems like they're getting to a more constructive place than they were 
a few short days ago. And that meeting again is on. Appreciated that you said on, that we're all wrong about it. You know, I always laugh at like Mel Kuyper and his fantasy football. I'm like, you know, imagine having a job like where it just doesn't matter. And you sit there and you like analyze things and like make up stuff. That's how I feel about oil and gas analysts too. Like no one really knows what the fuck's going on. <laughs> just sitting there guessing. Dan, like, no Dan Pickering used to say when he ran research in one of the organizations I worked in, I won't mention any names, but our leader was the institution's leader was prone to making provocative statements about global oil and gas markets. And Dan used to say, uh, that's great, but we have to be right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, always, and so we, we always talked about oil forecasts and all that. They're either right or they're wrong. They're never precisely right. Yeah, it's, it doesn't matter if there's a 75% so probability. can be set for any, any model either, or forecast. It's either up or down. So, so Mark, just as we head into the winter of our discontent, if this becomes a cold winter, what will happen with OPEC? Um, and I, I was just looking that European gas storage is at 99% full compared to a five-year seasonal average of 88%. So Europe seems to be preparing. Japan's preparing for long-term LNG um, imports. Um, what's going to happen if Brent goes, if it gets super, you know, cold AF this, this winter? Well, keep in mind that you're still missing a good chunk of the European supply picture. It's great that storage is full, but you still uh, have the, wind, the wind's going to blow. Have, have have a lot of you have a lot of gas offline from from Russia. That last winter, the combination of a mild winter and the ability to mm -hmm. to shift pretty hard to get spot cargoes that were bid up. Um, you know, Germans spending eight hundred million dollars on floating LNG and emergency coal supplies. You know, we'll see. I I think the the Anticipated El Nino winter, you know, portends some pretty significant ups, upside price risk, and you know we could start drawing inventories pretty quickly. I haven't, I've seen the ninety-nine point whatever percent full, but in terms of where demand could go relative, certainly to last winter, I think we could put pressure on supply-demand balance pretty quickly. Wouldn't it be great to be a trader at Trafigura that's that's sitting watching and waiting for all this just the shit to, ha to hit? No, because I'd have a heart attack probably daily. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't built for that. <laughs> Hopefully, so, no thing. I don't know if you guys saw uh, Permian Highway had a uh, force majeure. Um, there was a forget which compressor station. They had a pretty significant leak and. Uh, I think it was about 12.20 this morning they went into force majeure and canceled nominations for tomorrow. Oh, and so really? I had to shut in to, you know, to do root cause and then force uh, majeure applies to a leak? Yeah. Oh, okay. Damn. And, and I don't know if that had anything to do with kind of breaching the statutory uh, methane emissions limits, but I suspect there's, there's some of that in the decisions to declare yeah force majeure i have a topic i want to bring up yeah this is our last topic i was playing golf this weekend and i noticed there's all these canadians down here we don't talk enough about like what's happening in canada and all the oil and gas there oh dude i talk about this all the time but go on but these Maybe are not. these are uh it was a drilling contractor and some guys that's uh, suppliers yeah but one of the guys like six seven yeah and the guy next to me goes hey he played professional hockey i'm like no no he didn't <laughs> 
I'm like, dude, there's no way you played hockey. He's like, yeah, I did. He's like, I was like, defense, of course. Like, yeah, I was like, these small guys, I was thinking of you, Colin. I was like, these small, <laughs> fast skaters, like, don't they just skate around big guys? He's like, no, dude, my reach is so long. I, they can't get around yeah. me. I'm like, I got to see that. It just doesn't make sense to me. I just wanted to throw out a little Canada. I mean, I, I've well, been you know, to- I broke out on canadian drilling rigs and so they moved all the rigs on to west texas so i learned how to drill from canadians and so it was this weird dynamic because i mean you want to talk about like two prideful high ego types of people it's canadians and in west texas oil filled hands clashing and so um there's a what ton is of this on the boot? So you attempted to buy the 30-pack in Canada, or was that? No, it was in West Texas. Yeah. It was in Midland. It's how far safety cultures come for oil and gas, yeah. Bought 30-pack and then smashed it on the on the rig while working. <laughs> I've got a video of my second second day on the rig. Everyone's out there in shorts, flip-flops, no shirts, no hard hats, drinking beers, just drilling holes. It's back in the, <laughs> the glory days. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. So, all right. Um. Uh, any. Any. Thank you for bringing up the Canadians. And <laughs> God, we're gonna get flamed all week. Yeah. Anything else before we end it out? Denver. But anyway. <laughs> Damn, that's a little. Get us Dude, not out. even man. No <laughs> way. Uh, all right. Not, not unless you want to share some some of your weekend adventures. No, I didn't really have. Uh, oh yeah, I did. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I had a good weekend. Um. No, you know, we. I got a comment on LinkedIn that. Uh, We've got a lot of new listeners to the show over the last uh, few weeks. And anyways, I got a comment over on LinkedIn that said that uh, they've been listening to our show uh, the past couple of weeks and it's a must listen to them now, but I need to either sit closer to the mic or bring more gusto. So hopefully I brought the gusto today or talk louder. Maybe it's just a technical issue. Something's wrong with my mic, but we'll figure it out. But excited that we're getting new listeners. So I um, appreciate everyone that's sharing the show. Um, sharing it with a friend. Um, you know, if you guys ever have any feedback for us, let us know. Send us a message, LinkedIn, Twitter, find us online. We'll catch y'all next week.